and I'm sure you, I'm sure you got it, that uh, that particular skill of being able to swim from, from Alcatraz to San Francisco is not a life skill that will be of tremendous help to people who are living in North and South Dakota and other places where there's no bodies of water that you have to swim, but the idea of being able to master something that you couldn't previously do is enormous for these folks. It's enormous for anybody. If I could swim it, it would be, if any of us could do it. Anybody here not know how to swim? You know, it's an unusual thing for people who were born in the second half of the 20th century not to know how to swim, but people who were born in the first half sometimes. I couldn't graduate from college without, we had to all pass a swim test, can, can you believe? I went to a women's college, that was one of the things that you had to do is, I mean, I could swim, because my father taught me how to swim in the ocean, because we lived near the Atlantic Ocean. But for people to swim is a, is a big deal. So now, say about that, you could, you could donate money, I'm sure it says on that flyer, how to, how to financially contribute to these people. Did you say something about the way in which these people go back and impact their communities? Or would you like to? I mean, the, the intention is that it's, it's truly life-saving. Um, I have worked some as a pediatrician on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, and the life expectancy on Pine Ridge is 20 years less than the national average life expectancy. It's the poorest county in the United States. It's really devastating poverty on many levels, spiritual poverty, economic poverty, social poverty physical poverty. And so the intent is to really plant seeds of success and seeds of ideas. So we work, during the week, we work on food preparation, learning about food, gardening, other forms of activity. And then the idea is that people go home and and start programs within their own communities, or even, first of all, within their own families. So each year, after the first two years, we've had sort of an equal balance of returning people who sort of mentor the new participants and new people. And this year we have an age range from 14 years old to 59 years old who are participating with us. Is Joe in here? Because Well, she's been here the morning. Oh, there you are. Can you just speak? We're talking about past art, just what it's like to be there the morning of the swim. Because that's what I really, really, really want you guys to get. It's like so cool. It is. I mean, um, you, it's early in the morning. It's usually like 10-ish. Well, this year it's early. It's early like 9. Oh. Yeah. So, oh, well, anyway. And... <laughs> And you're just there, and of course it's always a beautiful morning, and it's early, obviously. And then um, all of a sudden these kids start coming in, and they all wait for each other. They don't all just come in. They all finish together. And it's just such a beautiful thing. And um, yeah, so come if you can. It's wonderful. So it's not this Monday, not this it's Monday. October 10th. The end, which is on the That's one. three weeks from, yeah. It's, well, like two and a half weeks, yeah. Yeah, okay, so it's two weeks from next Monday. Correct, yeah. Who has... It's actually Indigenous Peoples Day. So there, yeah. which we, we don't participate, there's a sunrise, Indigenous sunrise ceremony out on Alcatraz. Um, so we can't be getting ready to swim and go out there, but we have like a prayer ceremony and ritual in our 
in our club where we start the swim and then take the boats out and then the rangers out on the island announce to the people that have been there for the sunrise swim that they can stay on and it can be very cool because you can see everybody on shore doing prayers and encouraging the the pastor swimmers who are Native Americans. So it's a, it's a pretty, I, I swear the bay gets a foot deeper because I just cry that whole day. I'm so <laughs> So if you're not afraid of flooding, come on down. <laughs> so it's a week from this Monday, and if people wanted to be there, where do they, does it say here where to show up? One flyer, yeah, two weeks from here. There you go. Because Nancy started it, that's it. <laughs> That's on, right? Is that on? So I'm originally from South Dakota, and I'm a pediatrician and live in San Francisco. I'm also um, a not very good, but a very enthusiastic swimmer. So, And I started swimming in the bay um, because of a spine condition that can be very painful. The cold water in the bay actually helped numb me enough that I could move because um, I couldn't swim in a pool. And... So that combination of wanting to do something that would really inspire people to take care of themselves and to get moving and to feel healthy and to have successes to build on instead of prevention. And also because I've done amazing swims and I'm not a good swimmer, so I know it's possible just with the right support and encouragement. So it just all came together. But yeah, I'm the, it's a goofy idea, but I started it and it's pretty cool. Yeah. You can turn yours off. Next week, when you've had a, another week to think about it, maybe next week uh, we'll remember to talk about it. And maybe if some of, are you going to go, Joe? Well, we could talk about it. Maybe we could organize ourselves into a carpool or something. Whoever, anybody, if Joe and I were going, we, people at all interested, we'll talk about it next, next Wednesday because that would be a far out thing if we all went. It'd be the, my, my daughter usually goes. Is Emmy going, or is she going to be? I think she. I think she is. I need to get in touch because she's out of town for the first vision for the. Yeah, she is out of town from this Saturday to next Saturday. But yeah. Anyway, okay. She'll be back. I so look forward to being back today. You know, this is this new way of. Uh, I, I don't know whether it's because of Donald's sabbatical or whatever it is, but it worked out that for the rest of this year, we're here for a month, and then we're gone for a month. And it's a month is too long. I miss. We have to interpolate these more because I, I miss not being here. But it's important that he's here too. So.
Anyway, we'll work it out. Does it matter to you this, 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 or it's the same? Okay. But anyway, here we are back, and I've been looking forward to it. Uh, because I need to be here for myself, <laughs> first of all. <laughs> I like to tell people that I'm when they say, you're still teaching, I say, yes, I am, because it's very good for me to hear Dharma, because it keeps me sane. And I would just as well hear it from me as anybody. I mean, it's... A, <laughs> It's more convenient if, 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 I mean, that sounds terrible, but it's more convenient to take myself if it's me, you know. That, <laughs> and then I get to talk about what I want to talk about, which is always the same thing, even though I come in and say, today's Dharma talk is blah, 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 blah. It's always the same thing. If that's really true, you know. Every Dharma talk is how we're going to keep it together in spite of the fact that life is so inevitably challenging. How are we going to keep ourselves vulnerable and open to life experience? How are we going to be able to embrace it? So that's what I want to talk about. And in that, you can talk about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Five Hindrances and all of the standard Buddhist things to talk about, and we will. But I think so much these days of the Dharma of everyday life, uh, there's a, uh, I've just uh, started to read The Trauma of Everyday Life. Who's read this, by the way? The Trauma of Everyday Life <laughs> um, by uh, Mark Epstein. Mark Epstein is a, psycho a psychiatrist in New York City who's written some very other wonderful books the first of which was uh, uh, Thoughts Without a Thinker, which is a very seriously Dharma book. And he's a very good person, and I'm very interested in this. So I'll, I'll, I'm, this is, this is a, um, what do you call it, a preview. I've just started, because I've been thinking, I'm always thinking about uh, that everyday life and Dharma in everyday life is really what we're talking about all the time, that when, uh, when this building was conceived of, uh, it was in, a, in, in addition to retreat practice that was the hallmark of what happened here at Spirit Rock when we first began here. Uh, 1989, I think, the, the, the land was built. I bought, and 2000 is when we opened the retreat center on top of the hill. And it was always in the plan to have a lower campus, and we had the, the, the community hall across the road here up until quite recently. And those of us who met regularly over there were really waiting to get in here before the old community hall just collapsed on itself. So we're in in the nick of time. But... Uh, but uh, I think that what has become really prominent for me in my understanding uh, over the last several decades that, that I've been studying and practicing and teaching is that um, extraordinary as uh, contemplative practice intensively done as on retreat is, that really the great goal is to be able to live one's life in the, as one's dharma, uh, that, uh, that the real challenge is to be in the world and be able to make clear decisions and stay connected to it and stay energetic. 
that people are saying these days, I can't wait until the election is over. Well, you know, the election, has anybody here said that about, uh, you know, it's too, but you know, inevitably one day will follow another and uh, it'll get to be November and it'll get to be November 9th after November 8th. And then we'll do what we'll do on November 9th, you know, and the next day and the next day. Been thinking a lot about um, uh, Gil Fransdahl's definition of equanimity, which I love. It's like my favorite thing to say. Where he said, equanimity is the ability to say about one's experience moment to moment, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. I love that. I think that's the most brilliant thing to say. Because mostly when I get startled, it's because I've gotten frightened about what I think will happen next. So the idea that there's a next, oh, there's always a next. And let's see what happens next. It gives me a little time to compose my mind and say, well, you know, there'll be a next, and then something will happen, something will happen. I find that very consoling. So that's what I want to talk about today and always. You know, how are we gonna, what, what things are we going to do to keep ourselves um, with enough clarity of mind so that whatever is happening you can say, let's, let's see what happens next. Really, it's actually a good uh, description for uh, instructions for practice. This is what's happening now. This is what's happening now. Let me anticipate what's coming. So before we sit, which I will do just in a couple of minutes, I really want to see who is new, who do I not know, who has not been here before. What's your name? My name's Charlie. And where do you live? We live in San Antonio. Ah. <laughs> and is this the first time you've come to Spirit Rock? Or? It's, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> no, welcome. You came just in time. We always look like this. <laughs> Welcome. Please come again. Who else? Yeah. Uh, my name's Chiquita, and I've been to Spirit Rock many times. Uh-huh. But I haven't been to this meditation group before. Well, Chiquita, I, re I remember I looked at you, and I thought we had seen each other before. That was really fun, that three-day, go home and come back, go home and come back. Very, very good. Thank you for coming. Who else? You've been here before. So when, when Susan wrote to me, she didn't say that you've been here before. Okay. But welcome. What's your name? My name is O'Shea. Okay. I'm happy that you're here. I wasn't here last week. That's what. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Who else? Yeah. You just moved to Kentfield. Well, I'm, Zoe, I'm happy that you're here. Who else? <laughs> well, welcome. Well, I've been to Spear Rock before, but the first time to this group. So introduce yourself to them. I'm John. John is part of the staff at Spear Rock. <laughs> <laughs> so he's been here every day for 
<laughs> Every day. <laughs> so who else is here? Yeah? Okay, welcome. Well, good, good. That's not, coming in that direction is a little easier than going south in the morning, so. Well, I'm welcome, welcome. Thank you for coming. This is terrific. Well, one of the things that I like a lot about the Wednesday class is that um, it happens every single Wednesday. You know, really it does. The only way it doesn't happen is if it's Christmas Day, I think. That might be the New Year's Day, we're always here. So um, uh, I, I will be here actually again on New Year's Day for the whole day. But Christmas Day is the only day where if it's a Wednesday, then there isn't a Wednesday class. But the rest of the time, there is. And usually it's uh, either me or Donald uh, Rothberg who's here. But if we're not here, someone is here. And I like the idea that this class is always here. So it's not Donald's class or Sylvia's class. It's Wednesday class. And I think of it a lot as, uh, as kind of a, those, for at least from uh, from Donald's point of view, Wednesday, he has made Wednesday his Sabbath. So the Muslim Sabbath is Friday, and the Jewish Sabbath is Saturday, and the Christian Sabbath is Sunday, and Wednesday is Donald's Sabbath. He comes in, because he comes in the morning, and he teaches, he prepares, he teaches, he stays and has lunch, and then he stays all afternoon. And he walks around in the hills, and he sits in here, and he takes a day away from all of his electronics and all the rest of his life. And I think that so much fits into the idea that the, the real question is, how are we going to keep our mind um, um, malleable enough, not frightened into rigidity, but malleable enough, malleable enough to respond to life as we'd like to respond with a full heart and with compassion, and be not frightened enough to be able to do that that I think that so much conspires these days that startles, that to have a little bit of time set aside consciously, intentionally, to decompress a little bit, to take a little time out from the startle. It's a very wise thing to do in your life. So we should right now take time out from everything else and unstartle. There are lots of ways to say the instructions for mindfulness practice. I used to, um, when I first began practice, you know, I, I, met my, I, I met mindfulness meditation in 1977, and uh, which next year is 40 years, uh, which is about just about half my life. And I met, I met Jack Cornfield in the summer of 1977. Um, 
And I used to listen to my teachers giving the instructions, and they would say, uh, mindfulness meditation practice is uh, being with every moment uh, of your life with clarity and poise, paying attention to everything that happens internally and externally, and now bring your attention to the breath. And I'd say, wait a minute. I wouldn't say that out loud because that would be sassy. But I, I would think it to myself. And I would think, you just said it's paying attention to everything in your life, moment to moment, internally and externally, whatever arises. And now bring your attention just to the breath. Be with the breath. And if your attention does not stay with the breath, and you notice that, bring your attention back to the breath. And I would think, wait, you just said something else. Turns out that they did say something else. Uh, the, the, what I want to put in, because I'm going to say, be with your breath, is that it's not about breath. It's about the ability to pay attention in a dedicated way. And we practice often using the breath because everybody's breathing. Everybody's here is breathing. So it's a very valuable thing when you say to a room full of people, let's try to relax, be present to the moment, I'll give you some hints about other ways you can be present to the moment. And then let your attention rest primarily with the breath. It's really a, um, a, um, a warm-up exercise for being able to pay attention to everything with a certain degree of steadiness. It's like when you go to a gym and you work out with weights and you have a, a particular goal. It's the goal is to go out and live your life with vitality and strength and do all the movements of your life, bending and stretching and running and hurrying and sitting down and bending over with ease. But you don't live in the gym. You take what you did in the gym and you take it out to your life. We use the breath just as a way of being able to reconnect ourselves to the idea of focused, steady attention. And then, as we can, you bring that focused and steady attention to the whole of life. I just said that last sentence, that like that was an easy move. It's not an easy move, because life is so overwhelmingly complex, happening all the time. So it's nice. It's not only nice. I think it's vital to have ways. The breath is one of them. It's not the only way to bring your attention back to a certain level of poise and steadiness. In this moment, in this breath, I often think, just at this point, that I should remember to say, uh, the first thing that first responders are taught to say when they come on the scene of something that's just happened, somebody's been in an accident, they've fallen or they've had some sort of physical crisis, is they say, you're going to be all right, take a breath. It has a way of bringing the attention back into this moment, not complicating it with alarm. So we'll try to do that for today. And then as weeks go by, you'll notice that we practice other ways of bringing the attention into this moment by saying a phrase or by feeling the body 
today let's work very much with the breath. Sit in a way that's comfortable for you. Here we have the, the boon, the possibility of relaxing. The room is quiet. There's nothing else to do. Telephone won't ring. There isn't another chore to do. We can really be here in this moment. If it's comfortable for you to close your eyes, then let your eyes close. Closing the eyes is not a requirement for mindfulness. We do walking meditation, mindful walking meditation, with eyes closed, with my eyes open. We do walking, we do yoga meditation with eyes open. Since we're sitting, if you feel all right about it, close your eyes. You'll notice that sitting, you know that you're sitting. Even with eyes closed, you don't have to open your eyes to check up, am I sitting? You feel more pressure on your bottom. And if you're in a chair, you feel the back of the chair against your back. There's no rule for how to hold your hands. You can, have, you can hold hands with yourself. You can put hands on your thighs. People who've practiced uh, Zen meditation often hold their hands in a certain mudra form. Whatever is comfortable for you. For some moments, listen to the silence in the room. I'm not sure why, but this room seems quieter to me than our former classroom was. It feels like a very big, expansive quiet. And it's my experience, perhaps it's yours, that when I, with intention, listen more closely, really emphasizing the faculty of hearing, that I find my whole body presents itself to me in an interior way so that I feel my body more from my feet all the way through my legs and my torso and my arms all the way up to my head. 
Maybe that happens for you. I always like to remember to say, just about this time, if it feels right to you, then you could smile a little bit. If I do that, I often find that my body relaxes just a little bit more. And then what I notice, and what I imagine you may notice, is that if the body's quite still, the mind is quite alert, that the experience that's most prominent is the fact that the body is being breathed. Breath goes in and breath goes out. even without any impulse on your part that's intentional to breathe, your body breathes. Everything that needs to happen to allow your lungs to expand happens. Breath goes in. And then on its own schedule, it goes out. Every once in a while, it'll suddenly occur to me how miraculous it is that that happens from the moment we're born until the end of our life so reliably. And one of the things that's true about the mind and the body relaxing is that when its experience is rhythmic, such as it is when you rest the attention in the coming and going of breath, that there's something about the reliability of that change and the rhythmicity itself that does something to the nervous system, calms it down. Like listening to waves while sitting at the seashore. So we'll sit for a while, and I'll invite you to rest the attention. Allow the intention to rest. Allow the intention to rest primarily 
with that experience of breath in and breath out. Body moves one way, body moves another way. From time to time, there certainly are thoughts that arise in the mind. Feelings that happen in different parts of the body that register. Sounds that happen that register. They're always the rest of one's experience. It's somewhat muted in a quiet room when we sit still, but still, thoughts arise. To choose primarily in the moments of choice, the experience of breath in and out is to really encourage the attention to both settle down and become more steady and more alert. not sleepy, an alert attention in a relaxed mind and body.
It's often my experience that when I sit quietly for a while, um, what comes to my mind are um, people that I'm thinking about particularly because their circumstances are particular for this time or for today, sometimes in a splendid way and sometimes in a really distressing way. So it's become our um, practice to uh, spend these last minutes of our sitting together as a communal space. And I invite you to speak into the space. Who's on your mind this morning as you sit? Who are they? And what do you hope for them so that they can be our communal hope?
Thinking of my dear friend Nicole, who is back in the She's on that journey right now. We wait for the best for her But her email was so uplifting and so positive. So I wish her, I wish her well. She's, she's just a wonderful being. Me and Sharon is Patrick. thinking of myself and I haven't been sleeping lately and just hope, hoping that I get some sleep. Uh, it's really tough to, and I work full time, it's really tough to try to work and, and go on with your life when you're not getting a lot of sleep. So uh, trying to have some self-compassion and just praying for sleep. great pride of my niece Julie who a year ago was starting surgery, chemo, and radiation for breast cancer and this past weekend walked 39 miles in two days on a breast cancer walk in Los Angeles. <coughs>
thinking about all the people that we mentioned and all the people that we thought of and didn't mention, all the people that we heard about and don't know but feel for, celebrating the capacity of human beings to care deeply for others. Whether they're known to us or not, may that impulse of goodwill and care and compassion be an impulse that in us sustains us and in the world somehow gets nurtured so that the world gets to be a place where people take care of one another out of their natural goodness. More often than not, at um, at this point, um, the, the people who are here all the time will know that more often than not, at this point, I say to myself, I say to you, you know, that the last ten minutes that we spend together of our sitting every week is the most cogent Dharma talk I can possibly think of. I always think about uh, after we sit, then I'm supposed to give a talk about Dharma. And I don't know what talk I could do that would be more significant than uh, our experience of shared awareness of pain in the world and of the desire to reach out to people in pain that's innate to us. On the one hand, I, I often feel um, how overwhelming the range of things that can happen to people is, things that we never even thought of that could happen to people. And on the, at, at the same time, how heroic we all are, because everybody gets up in the morning and gets dressed, but most everybody, not everybody, but most everybody keeps on hoping it'll get better, hoping to cure, hoping to survive, hoping to care for, hoping for peace in the world, hoping that good things happen in the world, hoping that everybody that we care about is sustained. And we have that impulse in us. We don't we don't give up. In a sense, we're the story of the 
of the, um, the paradigmatic story about the Buddha. I've been thinking about that a lot, uh, about the, the paradigmatic story about the Buddha is that he grew up not knowing about pain and loss and death. Uh, I, I take that to be a folktale, because you can't not know, but I think it's a very valuable folktale that he somehow grew up unaware of the existential dilemma that human beings have, that we grow up and our parents age and our grandparents die and our parents die if we're doing it in the right order. And um, when confronted with that as a grown-up man uh, in, the, in the story, he suddenly realizes there is such a thing as old age, sickness, and death. And it's, and it's the same for everyone. And uh, the fourth of the three realizations he has is the realization seeing a, a monk walking through uh, a worldly situation where there is old age, sickness, and death. And the monk is serene of visage and looks somehow like he's all right. And he has the realization that uh, it would be possible for human beings to be aware of the existential dilemma. We will lose everything that's dear to us and still be able to be in the world and uh, at ease in it. And uh, I think it's, 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 it is the ongoing dilemma for everyone. This morning I was thinking about it uh, in the sense that uh, I was thinking about a number of things that had been uh, come up for me in the last couple of days in the news that were just terrible to think about. And uh, just the last, I, as I was driving over the hill, I turned on the radio and I heard the story about, um, not the story, I heard the report about a two-year-old East Bay child who um, was with his mother visiting friends down the street who ran out into the street to chase a ball and got hit by a munibus and died last evening. And I think for that person, the calamity of that child is the, is the worldwide calamity, you know, whether it's, whether it's an illness or an accident or a war or an, uh, whatever it is. Um, the calamity of losing what's dear to you is one that can happen to anybody in any place. Child could be well, everybody could be well, and the bus driver not intoxicated, just happens. As I was sitting actually in the time that we were sitting, I remembered that one of my really closest friends um, in the world now, a woman who's uh, almost my age, uh, said that the secret of her family, which she discovered as a young child, is that she not only had one sister who was 17 years older than she was, but she had a, a brother who was uh, also, I think, eight years older than she was or something, who, um, who died 
in a similar accident to this boy in, in the East Bay yesterday who uh, was on a, on a sidewalk in New York City and ran out chasing a ball and died. And she found out about it as a young girl growing up because no one ever talked about it. And she found a picture of a young boy in her mother's drawers. You know how it is, how many people here rifled through their mother's drawers at some point or another <laughs> while the parents were out? Everybody does that sort of stuff. They should always tell children, don't look in any drawers. <laughs> because she found a picture of a young boy with that she, who she had not seen before. And why was that picture tucked in the corner of her father's sock drawer? And it took her a long time to ask who it was. And that was not unique to her family. In those days, my mother had a sister who was uh, four years, I think, younger than she was. And she had a sister eight years younger. And I did not learn about the four-year-old, four-year younger sister until I was an adult. I thought I had my mother and my aunt. And there was a child in between that died of rheumatic fever, actually. But in those days, people didn't talk about it. That the, the cultural assumption was that, uh, well, when I found out about it many, many years later, and my mother was long gone, I called my aunt and I said, I'm really upset because I found out about this younger sister than my mother. And uh, I'm, I'm really upset that you didn't tell me about it and that my grandfather, my mother's father, who lived to be 98, I'd heard, a, I'd heard something about it and I'd asked him about it in his mid-90s. By the way, did you have another daughter? I heard from somewhere I'd gotten that information. And this is, I'm now a 40-year-old woman. He's a 95-year-old man. And he said, no, 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 there was never another daughter. And then some years he died, and then I found out about the daughter, and I called my aunt, and I said, I'm so upset, because my, you know, I had a very close relationship with my grandfather, and I feel terrible about it, because I feel like he lied to me. And she said, well, he didn't lie. Said, what do you mean he didn't lie? I asked him, and he said, no. She said, he forgot. I said, Miriam, you don't forget if you have a child who dies. You don't forget about it. She said, yes, you do. If you can't stand it, you forget. And over the years, my grandfather's gone now. Well, I'm 80, so it's 40 years since, since I asked him. And I really have, uh, at the time, I thought, no, 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 no. But you know, I'm not sure, no, 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 no. You know, if, I don't know what the mind would do if it can't stand it. I think one of the, if we were at all more evolved as a, as a species or as a social community. Maybe it's because we talk about, one of the th factors of that is that we talk about things that we didn't used to talk about, like who died or who has an illness. Didn't used to say about who has an illness. Actually, in, I don't know about your family, in my family they were a little phobic about saying the name of a bad illness. They would say so and so has you know what, you know, that, because they they were you know like if you say what it is, did you have that Susan that they, they did that kind of thing? Uh, it's m kind of magical thinking. 
So maybe the Buddha was um, in a line of people who said, look, this is the way life is. But the thing is, this is the way life is. And how do we embrace it? How do we not be so frightened of it that we forget that it's amazing? Not what is happening, but that is happening. I was trying all week as I thought about what to talk about this morning. I have a whole lot of things I want to talk about. But uh, there was one particular phrase which I couldn't remember, which I knew I wanted to remember. And all week I was thinking, what's that phrase? What's that phrase? I need that phrase. Didn't think about it. And then we were sitting here for a half hour. And all of a sudden, ding, it like the, you know, like, like the computer suddenly logs on. And it said, the phrase I was looking for was, I learned it from, a, I learned it from uh, my friend Mary, who's uh, a Dominican sister in San Rafael. He said that, told me it been 40 years ago. May I be filled with that sense of awe that opens my capacity for loving. Is that a good phrase? May I be filled with that sense of awe. So now you remember it, because I didn't write it down. And if I tell you what was it I was trying to remember, you'll tell me. May I be filled with that sense of awe that opens my capacity for loving. What am I going to do to keep my mind afloat? I used to say, uh, We've been with the, the meeting on Wednesday morning for so long that I can now say I used to say, and it's so long ago that most of the people didn't remember it. I used to say, what about if you sat down on a muni bus in the morning and you said to the person next to you, what are you doing these days to keep your mind, uh, keep your heart afloat? And this is a little bit, <laughs> people used to laugh and they would say, if I got on a mini bus and said that to the person next to me, they would get up and change their seat. <laughs> That's a, kind of a bizarre thing to say. But it's not a bizarre thing. Every one of us has figured out something that gets us up in the morning and gets us out, that keeps us going for yet another day. And we listen to the news. I, I <laughs> Sherry, show what everybody said ooh about. Sherry has her dog in that bag, see? She's got a chihuahua in there. <laughs> I forgot that she's in there all the time with you. Thank you. I didn't mean to. <laughs> No, 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 but here you came. This is really important because here you came with the chihuahua. And all of a sudden, didn't, when you saw that, didn't your heart lift up? That was a moment of, may I be filled with that sense of awe that opens my capacity for loving this Sherry with a chihuahua. And there's something extraordinary about it. I always think that about the turkeys when I drive in here in the morning, whatever I'm thinking about. And whatever I may have been consumed by. And often I'm listening to the news and I hear something really dismaying. And then the turkeys walk across the road. And they're so improbable. You know, that they look like they're made with spare parts. They don't, they don't, they're not, they don't, you know, they're, they're, un, they're ungainly. They can't fly. They, and I look at that and I think, what was God thinking, you know? But, but it's, it's, it lifts you up to be able to notice, wow, I just noticed a chihuahua, I just noticed a turkey. My heart picked up. 
And to know, and to, I think that one of the things that we do by coming here is we come here because we remember that there are things we can do. We can remember to be mindful of, like a moment of Chihuahua, a moment of Turkey, a moment of amazement that somehow pick up the mind. We can tell each other, listen, look for the break in the clouds. I read this poem by Robert Bly a couple of weeks ago, and I said, whatever, I, I thought to myself, I wrote it down because I thought, whatever else I start with when I get back, I want to start with this poem. Think in ways you've never thought before. If the phone rings, think of it as carrying a message larger than anything you've ever heard, vaster than a 100 lines of Yeats. Think that someone is bringing a bear to your door, maybe wounded and deranged, or think that it, a moose has risen out of the lake and that he's carrying on his antlers a child of your own whom you've never seen. When someone knocks on your door, think that he's about to give you something large or tell you you're forgiven or that it's not necessary to work all the time or that it's been decided that if you lie down, no one will die. <laughs> I love that. Someone read it at a, um, at a board meeting at Spirit Rock to start the day because the material that we were going to talk about at that meeting was complex and difficult and there were all kinds of views about it. And person read that to start the day to make the point that we could all think in a new way. I love that. Think about someone who's bringing a moose or carrying a bear. What is the name of the poem? I think it's called Things to Think. Things to Think. It's by, it's by Robert Bly, and it's an anthology called Morning Poems, which I promptly bought with my little handy Amazon app. <laughs> but I thought about it in terms of really think in a new way. And really, I think, I, I particularly liked it because I thought that it made the point in a really splendid way, that when, which is really the point that I think about all the time, that we live in a startling world. And I thought to myself, I, I heard this morning about uh, uh, a shooting of someone in North Carolina yesterday. and the huge dismay throughout the community, throughout the world, throughout this country, I'm sure. And then I thought about this child who ran out in the street in Oakland. So the big dismays, local dismays, personal dismays. And we are privy to so much of other people's dismay for the good and for the difficulty in it. You know, and Thinking about the fact that when my grandfather came to the United States, he was 25 years old. He left his mother and father and eight siblings in Austria and never saw them again, nor heard their voice because you could not in those days phone up Austria. Um, and if he wrote a letter, he couldn't write a letter because he couldn't write, but if he wanted to send a letter, he had to get a scribe who wrote the letter, who sent the letter that took six weeks to get there that the people on the other side would have to get a reader, a scribe, to read the letter and then 
scribe a letter back that would come back. So he did actually, after some period of time, hear about his parents' deaths or probably the deaths of siblings. But one's experience was more or less really limited to what was in your neighborhood or what was in your family, what you met during the day. And we have, with modern times, we meet the whole world every day. So we know about everybody's, not everybody's, but we have the potential of knowing about people far and wide. We also have the potential of doing surgery on, on babies in the womb or adjusting genetics or figuring out amazing things. So this is in no way saying we should go back to the old days before. But in these new days, we have everything. We have the ability to do amazing things. We have abilities to do really terrible, huge things. And we have, a, we have very, I think, I, don't, I wonder sometimes about our nervous system if it hasn't, if it hasn't uh, maybe been outpaced by the last hundred years, you know, that uh, I wonder if we don't need two Sabbaths or three Sabbaths every week or every other day of Sabbath or not so much, but that, you know, something about the amount of input coming in. What I thought I would talk about in these weeks, I think we're together for three weeks today and next week and next week. And I thought, well, what particular Dharma topic? Again, I spoke about it earlier, that there is no particular Dharma topic that isn't every other Dharma topic. So if I start with the awareness of uh, what's going on in our world and the fact that uh, uh, what the Buddha was saying is that in order to be able to make wise decisions, uh, like the wise decision that says, this is life, it is, uh, to, to be born is to be vulnerable and is to sustain loss and grief. But people do it. That, was, that like, is one way to re-say the Buddha's vision of old age, sickness, and death, and the monk. How many people here uh, know that the San Francisco Opera is doing a new opera called The uh, Dream of the Red Chamber? How many people saw it? I saw it. It's amazing. It's a, it's a condensation. Uh, you don't have to see it. I'll tell you the story. It's a condensation of a 2,400-page in translation book that's an epic novel, an uh, epic piece of Chinese literature, which has now been pared down to a few characters in about three hours of opera. Uh, 2,400 pages. But the basic story, it begins with uh, an age-old myth about a flower and a rock and a dewdrop in some antiquity where dew falls down and hits the stone and bounces off on the flower and waters it. And the flower and the stone live together in that harmony forever, for eternities. And then they are so in love with each other, the stone and the flower, they decide to have a mortal birth so that they can actually 
experience mortal passion. And it's actually quite beautifully done on stage with what looks like a stone because of the lighting and a flower. Suddenly are two beings intertwined and you see that they, so they look like an, a static thing, a stone, and they become two people. And then here's a whole story. There are two people who are in love. And right away, it gets complicated because there are love triangles and problems and all kinds of things that come up, that come up with life. What Zorba would have called the whole catastrophe, but you know, this is way before Zorba. But they have lust and greed and jealousy and all the things that human beings are strung to have. And in the end, it's calamitous and the world falls altogether apart and they go back to being a stone and a flower watering each other for eternity. And the message, which is not that hard to figure out, is that if you, take, if, if you are animate, if you take birth as a living, breathing being, then there is birth and death and travail and all of the things that happen and jealousy and desire and so really, that's, that's really the, uh, the, the, the hub of the question. First of all, we don't get to have a choice. Can't say, you know, I wish I was back of stone. Bing, I'm back of stone. We are in a life, and we have nothing to do but nowhere, nowhere to go but forward. It's so amazing to me, that particularly this year, because I had my 80th birthday, I, I, I keep thinking to myself, uh, Someone tells me somewhere that they're 81 or 82, and I think, oh, old woman. Then I think, ah, oh, wait a minute, you know, because <laughs> uh, it, it took me a little while because I, you know, I, and actually, it's not like I'm surprised. I know it. I'm, I'm celebrating it. I tell people, well, I, don't, I feel like me. I feel like me. So that's not changed, but I feel like it happened way faster then it felt like it was happening all of a sudden to have arrived. Don't you think that? Are you, do you, you feel that? I'm looking at all the people that I know are somewhere up around my area. <laughs> I think, Elizabeth, it, it, didn't it happen faster than you can imagine? I'm really. <laughs> but apart from, I sometimes think it's a millions of billions of mind moments of experience, and all of a sudden, boom, that was a life. I could tell about it if somebody said, you know, uh, what school did you go to or what are your children's names? I know those facts, but they should take a long time, and I don't feel like it took a long time. I feel like all of a sudden I got here. So it's a, it's a peculiar thing. We'll come back and talk about that. I wanted to t start by talking about, uh, this is probably going to take me three weeks to talk about. So I want to talk about, I think, it's a, I think that that existential question, why don't, we, why don't we stay a stone and a flower? Why don't we say, I'd rather be out of this? Why do we get up in the morning and say, I hope it gets better. I hope this person gets cured. I hope the election goes the way I want. Hope springs eternal is the old adage about that if we're lucky, if we aren't overwhelmed with depressive genes, which are very hard to deal with. The, the kind of, I'm convinced that uh, somebody will figure out what the genetic link is. And, because somehow we want to live. There is that. 
So I was thinking about this, the, this path that we're doing is called the path to liberation. And I was thinking, about, sometimes called the path of liberation, sometimes called the path of purification. It's interesting to me to think about when I began hearing about Dharma in the 1970s, uh, it wasn't so often called uh, the path of purification, which I like very much. Uh, I, I think the emphasis was on freedom. And uh, purification sounded too Victorian, I think, and too much about ethical behavior. Uh, the ethical behavior was not the thing that was tremendously stressed in the 70s. Uh, still, it wasn't. It, it, I mean, really pushed the norm. Let's try things in a new way. Don't trust anybody over 30. Do you remember that when people said, don't trust anybody over 30? Uh, every, there was a time of pushing the norm of people, but also the decades after, in the second half of the 20th century, not a sociologist, but I look back and I think there were, uh, uh, in the post-war period, post-Second World War period, and then post, post the awareness of the atomic age, I think everything made such a big difference. And post the awareness of Vietnam, all kinds of liberation movements, liberation, the civil rights movements of liberation, the women's movement, uh, not those, those things are not finished. They started, and none of them finished. But the, the idea of what did liberation mean with, with Dharma practice, or what were we doing in meditating, I think we were hoping to liberate our minds from constrained ways of thinking so we could think in a new way. And I think that that was really what the Buddha was thinking, and that the new way that he was thinking about was the way that understood that life is uh, finite, that we lose things that are dear to us. I think that there's a, there's a, there's a possibility, and there's a lot of discussion amongst, uh, in the mindfulness community, there's a lot of discussion about a certain amount of um, kind of a, a, a pessimism in the early teachings about since everything that is dear to us is something that we'll lose. There's a particular saying of the Buddha where he said, everything that's dear to us causes pain. And I used to not teach that when I was starting to teach. Because that's like a terrible thing to say to people. Everything that's dear to you causes pain. I want to hurt people's feelings, but actually, it's it's true. You know, it's really true. But the the corollary that you might think from that, therefore, let's not make anything dear to us, is not where most of us are at. Most of us are hoping that we have the opportunity to make things dear to us. We're hopeful that as we grow up, that we'll find someone that we'll love that will partner ourselves. Often we're hopeful that we'll have progeny. It's more of a question now for the people who are my grandchildren's age, whether it was always a given that you should want progeny. I read yesterday that the polar ice cap will be gone in 2030. That's 14 years from now. That's, yeah. I thought to myself, you know, I'm, you know at, at different times when I hear some news about the election or something, I thought the polar ice cap is really going to be gone. I can't imagine that. 
I can imagine it, but I didn't think so soon. And 14 years is a minute in cosmic time. That doesn't mean I should become, give up on, on, on climate change and everything that I actually advocate for. But to put things in a perspective. One of my friends once said that we are Theravada Buddhists in Mahayana clothing. Uh, that, uh, I, I, do you get that actually, Dana? <laughs> Do you know Dana De Palma, who teaches here as well? <laughs> I thought I'd check out Dana. And Dana and I are going to teach, by the way. Sign up. Can they sign up already? This is Dana De Palma. Wave, everybody. Dana and I are going to teach a four-day retreat. We come on Wednesday and leave on Sunday in December. And so it's not a non-residential. It actually is a residential retreat, but only Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. So if you're looking for a short, but intense. <laughs> it's Dana and myself who are going to do it. So come do it with us. Can I your microphone placement? Yeah, sure. Do it, Sherry. <laughs> you know what? I'll take this off. This clatters on it. You see, when it's on the left and you turn your head left, we hear you better. Don't. Fix it. And when you move your arm, it rustles a little bit. All right. We're going to try center placement. Okay. And uh, we'll see how that works. We'll okay. see how it works. You're welcome. So I want to go back and talk about freedom because I think that uh, I, I want to go back and talk about liberation as freedom and freedom from thinking in habitual ways. That's at least start from freedom from thinking in habitual ways. That's why I love the Robert Bly poem about the doorbell rings, think about, that was a certainly non-habitual way. Someone is bringing me a bear. Someone is bringing me this, someone is bringing me that. Now the doorbell rings and we think, ah, who's there? Maybe it's somebody with you know, literature that they want to give out. Maybe it's somebody, whatever. But we don't often say, ah, this is a great opportunity. Someone's there at the door. <laughs> Or the phone rings, and it's not somebody we know. You know, Maybe they're calling to tell us about some long-lost good news or something. No. But I think, we're, I, think we, I, I, I look at myself, and I think, oh, uh, we are startled. I am startled uh, by how much stuff goes on. Free, oh, I, I, I wanted to read this to you. I read it a couple of weeks ago, but before I put this in the archives, not to be found forever. Um, well, <laughs> some of you are probably here. I wanted to think about thinking in new ways as being a way of adjusting the story that you tell yourself. Because I th I'm more and more thinking about how much my life is what I expect it to be because of the stories that I tell myself. And that if I'm really uh, vigilant about having made a certain opinion about what's happening before I even know that I've made that opinion. Like phone rings, you think, oh, I don't need this now. How do you know, you know, uh, or whatever. This is uh, the gata. A gata is a, uh, a phrase or a short set of phrases that uh, one says as an intention. Maybe next week we'll use the gata, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, or breathing in, I calm my body, breathing out, I smile. Some phrase that 
uh, elicits or hopes to elicit a kind of a feeling in you. So, and uh, it's that breathing in, I calm my body, breathing out, I smile, is Thich Nhat Hanh. So I always like to think, I, I saw it first as, in, as people were sitting in a meditation setting, I think Thich Nhat Hanh was there, and people had it on a paper in front of them that they were looking at as they were sitting, breathing in, I calm my body, breathing out, I smile. So it's kind of an intention and a uh, placing of the attention. So this is various gathas for life. It says, gathas are verses or poems which we use to help our mindfulness practice. And it comes from the website of Luminous Ground. I didn't know that. I just now notice it now. It's a Buddhist organization. So if you look at the website, Luminous Ground, you'll find these gathas. Breathing in, so this is a gatha for doing the dishes. Breathing in, I wash the dishes. Aware of their usefulness in holding nourishing meals that have sustained my family for many years. I wonder why it is always, always me doing the dishes by myself. And whether, interconnected as all human beings are, this may be the one exception. <laughs> Breathing out, I release my family, my feelings into the universe, ever hopeful that someone, somewhere, will sense my need and offer to help. I open my heart to the possibility of this miracle. <laughs> There's a lot of very good gatas here. You know, the fact that we can laugh is one of the things. I learned that from, I'm just trying, trying to figure out where I learned it from. I think it was my friend Mary, who was one of my teachers in graduate school, my very friend Mary, the Dominican nun, who said human beings are different from other species by at least the fact that they, uh, they bury their dead and they laugh. And I thought about that in the sense that we really do mourn, other species mourn, of course. But we mourn and we remember and we evoke the memory of people who were dear to us. And we have the capacity to laugh. Even sometimes in, 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 so to speak, inappropriate places, like sometimes you find yourself somewhere at a, at a very solemn kind of a place and something strikes you funny. You know, in meditation retreats, it sometimes happens like a room like this could have 100 people sitting meditating. And then somebody, day after day, say they've been there a long time, sometimes happens, somebody thinks about something which tickles them. And they all of a sudden are going to laugh, but they know they shouldn't be laughing in a room full of meditators that they haven't said a word to in eight days or something. But all of a sudden, something funny comes in their mind, and they're trying to hold in the laugh, and it comes out <laughs> like a snicker, you know? And then everybody gets it. And they, the people around them start to laugh because they are laughing at that person's situation. And then the person around, everybody, finally the whole room is laughing. Nobody knows what they're laughing about because they don't know. And, and so finally it dies down. Have you ever been in a room like that? It happens that every once in a while. Then it quietens down. And quiet, 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 quiet. And then somebody thinks of it again. And they do that, <clears throat> and then it happens again. It happens a few times, and then it dies down, but nobody moves, you know. 
because it's really ridiculous. There are a room full of people sitting like statues. You know, there's a way in which you go out of yourself. You think, what are these people doing? What they're doing is they're trying to focus their attention so that they can keep seeing past all these momentary thoughts and feelings and observations and opinions to what's actually true, which is that this is life, that things arise and pass away, that everything, not everything, everything that's dear to us passes away, everything passes away, and that that's the way of life. Otherwise, you have to be a stone. If you're animate and you're connected, then that's the, the job that you have to do is know how to deal with grief and loss. And you know that that you know I think about things like a two-minute lapse of attention on the part of that toddler's parent, which they will remember the whole rest of their life. Two seconds, five seconds maybe, turn away, and you know the whole life pivots on that moment. We are all here in that moment, in this moment, because nothing like that happened to. Nobody looked away from us when we needed to be attended to, but they could have. You know, the whole world changes with every moment. I think about that so much in terms of um, attentiveness. I think that one of the things that I began to think, um, periodically think through these decades of practice, is I really want to have enough alertness so that I pay attention. And I realize that everything needs attention. Uh, and I don't want to have so much alarm about it that I can't relax. Somewhere between knowing that from moment to moment, we are vulnerable. You don't know what's going to happen. We could hear a news that would be terrible. It could happen to us. I think about. Uh, my mother-in-law, long of blessed memory, used to call me um, periodically, quite early in the morning, from New Jersey, and wake me up and said, "Mother, why are you calling so early?" I said, "I heard that there was an earthquake in California." I said, "Mother, <laughs> California is a very big place. <laughs> I did not have an earthquake where I was, you know, but, uh, but there was an earthquake somewhere, and it could have been here." And, so I think that really what I'm trying to get around to here is how will we have enough alertness in the mind so that we pay attention to our lives and enough um, stability to know about anything that these things happen. Earthquakes happen. Malevolent things happen. I was remembering that um, my friend, uh, our colleague, Howie Cohen, used to say uh, about his uh, introduction to Dharma practice, to Buddhist practice, to what the Buddha said, uh, in a way that touches me still. He was a young man, probably in late 20s, and he heard his first talk about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And he said, the first time I heard that teaching about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, I cried. And he said, I cried because I, I was so reassured to find that um, my own uh, 
really uh, alarmed view about you lose everything that's dear to you was not unique to me. That that really is everyone's view. If it's not conscious to them, then it's, but it's right there. And he said, you know, that, that, that it, what the Buddha is talking is about that everybody has that same dilemma. It is the same dilemma that everybody has. I did want to get to read this to you because I thought that I thought you'd enjoy knowing it. I cut this out of the paper the other day. That, uh, that the Dharma that the Buddha taught, not to take anything away from the simplicity and the uh, nobility of what he taught in the way that he taught it and the practices of attentiveness that he taught, but that the, the wisdom of the Buddha is not Buddhist wisdom or any kind of parochial wisdom. It's wisdom wisdom. That's how it is to have a life in whatever way you see it. So there was an article in the New York Times the other day uh, about a play that's opened on Broadway. The play actually is uh, The Cherry Orchard, Chekhov. An old friend writes, I am far from cheating myself, my dear man, about the true condition of affairs. Not only am I bored and dissatisfied, but as a doctor, I am cynical enough to be convinced that from this life, we can expect only evil, errors, losses, illnesses, weakness, and all kinds of dirty tricks. Such was the world, according to Anton Chekhov, did I say an old friend, in an 1892 letter that he wrote to a friend. This point of view expressed by this country doctor and fledgling dramatist who had yet to write the four great plays for which he is known, feels uncomfortably contemporary in this anxious American season of public distrust and blood sport elections. But you should know that the letter being quoted from is, by and large, radiant with the author's contentment with his life then. It is typical of Chekhov, for whom understanding the worst of that aggravating and self-destructive collective known as humankind did not exclude embracing it, enjoying it, and even loving it. Chekhov, like Shakespeare, might be said to be close to some people's idea of God. Isn't that interesting? That this is this terrible life, we can't expect anything good from it, and I'm really contented. It's amazing. May I be filled with that sense of awe that opens my capacity for loving. So it's not a mistake to have, be alarmed about. I think we're more, I, I, I can't imagine that the fact that we all know so many things so fast uh, doesn't tip the scale a little bit in the direction of really feeling overwhelmed. I'm hopeful, I'm assuming that everybody monitors their own mind. They, you know, you don't, this is not a prescription for you. I have discovered that uh, I'm better off reading newspapers and not watching the news, anybody's news, uh, because the tone of voice is so aggrieved in the news that it's not just the news, but it's can you believe that this and this happened today? It's like aggravated tone of voice. That's all right, even if I don't watch it on the TV, people tell me about it. You know, I live in the world, or the newspaper tells me about it. 
But how to be able to say that through this thicket of what's going on is the truth, that things are the way they are because of everything that's happened. Always. They always were the way they were because of everything that happened before. And so tomorrow will be the way it is because of everything that happens today. And I think to myself that the part that I play in that, and that you play in that, and that we play in that together, is we come here together and we sustain each other in our desire, at least, to keep our head screwed on right. That it's possible as human beings in this world to see what's going on and feel compassion. It's very easy to get on. it's really easy to get seduced into and to be able to say this is terrible what can I do and not make my mind full of indignation and negativity it's really I was thinking about this is terrible to end on this but uh, alas that uh, event happened in New York where someone put a pressure cooker bomb in a dumpster. And it was all over the news for a whole news cycle. I thought to myself, what if every single, if, 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 every, if every dumpster in the United States became suspicious? You know, if we had to, in addition to everything else, like driving carefully, we had to avoid all dumpsters, you know? <laughs> That would be a really, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, it, there hasn't been a time in history. It's always been a time when somebody does something nasty, but they're not always being masterminded by a worldwide plot. Sometimes they're just a person doing something nasty. And to somehow insinuate that everything is, it's probably ridiculous to go back to, there was a, like a, a joke in the, it's not even funny, is it? In, no, I wouldn't even do it because it's not even funny. <laughs> not even funny. No, well, it was in the, in the time. It's, it's, it's another bad thing about the. the it's now, now no longer correct to, to watch cowboy westerns because they really had uh, indigenous peoples as the suspicious people and the cowboys as the you know, builders up of the West. But. Uh, there were a lot of cowboy films and cowboy uh, TV programs in just when te- television was new. And uh, people were talking about the pernicious effect of television. They said, here's a five-year-old whose parents tell them, we have very bad news for you. Grandpa Harry is dead. And the child said, really? Who shot him? And that being an indication of if you grew up in the cowboy westerns, then people all died by getting shot by somebody. It's not funny anymore because it's just not funny anymore. But like now, some somebody who's really not thinking clear, you know, a, a really deranged person puts a a pressure cooker bomb in a dumpster. It doesn't mean that the world has been that we've been attacked. It just means that one person did something. We don't have to get, but we do. So I think it's really wonderful that we get here together every week, say, listen, there's always a choice between getting hysterical and saying, let's see what's happening next. That, by the way, is the the wise effort moment in the Eightfold Path. I've uh, agreed to write a piece for the uh, Lion's Roar about the importance of wise intention 
above all other things in the Eightfold Path, which I'm having trouble finishing because I've been long saying that it isn't. <laughs> I've been saying that the main important thing in the whole Eightfold Path is wise effort, which does not mean, you know, about wise, wise understanding, wise intention, wise uh, action, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. That wise effort is not like trying hard. Wise effort is four things. It is the awareness moment to moment. Is my mind filled with uh, um, skillful thoughts um, or unskillful thoughts or skillful minds? What's a better word than skillful? Uh, wholesome, wholesome. There you go. Thank you very much. Is my mind filled with wholesome or unwholesome thoughts or feelings? If it's got wholesome in it, good. Keep it in. Build it up. Doesn't have wholesome in it? Ah, all right. We'll build up some wholesome feelings. Unwholesome in it, not in it. Unwholesome in it, get them out of there. Unwholesome, not in it, good, keep them out of there. That's the whole of the wise effort, four things. And moment to moment to be able to think before you do something, is, it's as if we're going down a road called life and we keep meeting forks in the road, moment to moment. And this one says wholesome, this one says unwholesome. This one says happiness. This one says suffering. And what we are always trying to do, I think, is to figure out, is what I'm about to do now or what I'm starting to do, I'm about to open my mouth and say something to somebody, is this going in this unwholesome way because I'm fired up by my own anger or would I be better off taking a breath, saying, wait a minute, this is my longtime friend, this is my lifelong partner, this is my colleague, this is my this, this is my that. They just said what really provoked me a lot. Could there be a way that I just let it go for a minute, take a breath, think it over, figure out how to bring this up? You move forward, but you don't precipitously get catapulted forward by your emotions running away with you, clouding up your mind and causing you to, call, to choose a way that makes things worse for you. Really, that I, without being banal about saying what was the, what the, another way to uh, reinterpret the third of the third noble truths with peace is possible in this life. It, it, uh, it's not banal, but it's a little bit flipped to say, could reinterpret it as don't make things worse. Life is complicated by so many things. You don't, just don't complicate it worse, and then we'll figure out what to do. We always do, because there's, there's, there's always something to do. And it's 11 o'clock, so the thing to do is to go home, and I'll see you next week. And I'm glad I'm back, so I'll see you in a week.
looks splendid. I'm in wonderful spirits. And yeah, I, I can see that. And I just um, vow that between now and the year. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.